I'd like to invite you to turn one last time to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I don't know about you, but this has been an incredible journey in my own soul as I have many favorite passages, but usually the one that we're preaching through is my favorite, and this has been hugely impactful to my own soul and life, and I know that many of you as well have resonated with the psalmist in Psalm 119. I titled this message, The Final Pleas of a Faithful Believer. The Final Pleas of a Faithful Believer. Let me read that for us so that we can set that before our own mind and then exposit that for us. That we might live like this faithful believer. Beginning in, in verse 169, he says this, Let my cry come before you, O Yahweh. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. And let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Yahweh. And your law is my delight. And let my soul live that I may praise you. And let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your slave. For I do not forget your commandments. But Father, we are grateful for this chapter. You have been so faithful in answering prayer in our own lives as we have come and beheld your glory through the life of this believer that you have sustained. You have demonstrated your faithful work through your word, sufficient for everything that a believer would face. All to your glory. And you have faithfully answered the prayers before our own eyes as we watch this man struggle, depend upon you, seek you, delight in your word, and see your faithful hand upon his life. Father, you are not only faithful to his life, you are faithful even to ours. And so we thank you for your work that you have done in and through our lives. Help us, O Lord, to come back over and over in our own hearts and souls to this psalm. That it would cause us to be dependent upon you all the more for everything that we encounter, everything that we do. That we would seek you in your word and see you as for who you are. That that would be our solid rock in which we stand and which gives us great courage and boldness and motivates us to come before you with our requests. Aligned with your truth. All to your glory. We thank you so much, Lord. May you use your word. May your spirit now use your word to encourage and motivate your people 
to faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen. So we come one last time to this incredible psalm. We've gone through this whole chapter, started back in April 2nd, 2017. And over the years, the intention was to exposit it every third month. But as life happens, things get changed and altered. But we come to the, to the longest chapter in the Bible... The longest chapter in the Psalms. And we have come and climbed the the Mount Everest of God's sufficiency of His Word in the child of God. There is no greater Psalm that helps us to appreciate the authority, the inspiration, the infallibility, the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Word of God than Psalm 119. And we can go back and you can consider all the things that we have studied. All the things that we have saw the psalmist go through. And this is an incredible way to end. To, 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 to end with full dependence upon the Lord. To be able to do what He alone can help us do. It's a great reminder that we need divine instruction and we need divine assistance to be able to do what God has called us to do. We remember that this psalm is what is referred to as an acrostic psalm. It is a psalm that consists of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And you can see that even in your most, in most English translations, every letter is taken. Today we will do the last letter, Tav, And every word that begins, each verse begins with that letter. And it's a a beautifully written, uh, stylistic way in which would aid the, the believer to memorize this psalm in a great way. But it wasn't just helpful for memorization. What it ended up showing and what it has shown us is that we have seen the A to Z the, the completeness and the sufficiency of the Word of God and the child of God. We have seen the sufficient Word in the believer's life through the times of rejoicing and, and, and the blessing of, of beholding God and, and delighting in doing His Word to the, to the times of despair, trials, afflictions, and everything in between. And the constant sufficient theme is that God's Word, God Himself and His Word, is what the psalmist needs to honor Him. And you see that in his dependence upon Him in prayer and and, in commitment and resolve to obey God's Word. It's no wonder that, that many believers come to the psalm and identify with the psalmist who long to do what He has commanded us to do. It is in this word that God has infused His power that when unleashed in the life of the believer, it transforms their lives. 
And maybe the circumstances may not change. But it will change you. It will change you. I love what R.C. Sproul once said. He said this, I think that the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests His power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in, pro- in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that which in which God has placed it, His Word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on the Scriptures. End quote. That's why we went through Psalm 119, so that you could see that. So that you can see that it's not just something that is up here, uh, uh, unreachable in our lives, but rather, Psalm 19 has taught us that God has placed His power to work in the lives of His people in His sufficient Word. It's a gracious thing that we could have a copy of God's Word in our own language and to be able to understand who He is and understand what He expects of us and understand that in us we would never be able to fulfill His Word but through Him we can. Through Him we can. And so this is, we come to this final stanza full of prayer requests which is, which is way different than what we started off or we close to the end, in the last stanza that we looked at, there were actually no prayer requests. They were all commitments and resolves. And, and, and really, as we looked at that, we saw how God was answering prayer, which revealed in the psalmist as he was stating, this is who I am now because of that. No prayer requests in verses 161 through 168. But here, depending on how you look at it, depending on on how you count them, it can be between six to eight prayer requests. Which shows, and it comes to a final God-honoring conclusion for how we are to live our life in light of the Lord. How much we need His help. This is how a believer ought to pray in his life. And and we've learned that throughout the psalmist's life in Psalm 119. So this is a fitting and final conclusion and a final plea for God to help us be faithful to him. And so this morning we're going to look at four godly requests that help us to pray rightly as we seek to live for the Lord. As we consider this life in this sin-cursed world, as we battle the world, as we battle what the, 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 the destruction and distractions and twisting of the Scriptures from the enemy, and as we battle our own flesh, these requests ought to be regularly in our hearts and lives as we seek to live for Him. Four requests that will help us to pray rightly as we seek to live for the Lord. 
And so pray, number one, pray, Lord, help me or hear my prayer. Lord, hear my prayer. This is where the psalmist comes to the Lord and and his desire is for his Lord to take heed to his prayer because he belongs to him. And he is in submission to his word. And you see the cry right away from the beginning. The, the, the literally the word, let my cry come before you. And then in verse 170, let my supplication come before you. You hear that the psalmist is, is, is praying continually and asking God to heed and give attention to his prayer. Literally, the cry can be a, a crying out loud, a, a, a deep weeping, a wailing at times of lament and prayer. It could also be used throughout the Bible and the Old Testament from a cry of jubilation or, or, or rejoicing, an, an exciting cry. Here, he, he is in desperate need of God's ear a continued cry to come before his presence that is before his favor you see to to be in the presence of an earthly king would mean a special audience with him the one who alone has the power of life and death And, and he recognizes who he is before his lord for yahweh and so he cries out, literally, in an emotional response to his, to his circumstance. We have not seen God specifically deliver him from the critics of his life. Those who seek to harm him. Those who want to destroy his reputation because he wants to follow faithfully after God. And yet, he comes knowing that the king who owns this universe is a faithful God, a loyal one. Notice, hear my cry before you, uh, let my cry come before you, O Yahweh. This is the the second to last time that the the psalmist appeals to God uh, based upon the relationship he has with him. And it reveals to us that, that he sees himself as part of the covenant people of God. Which, by the way, will give you already an indication of the right interpretation when we get to verse 176. This appeal, then, is based upon a right and rich relationship that he has had with the one who has redeemed him, the one who hears the prayers of his people. He says that again in verse 170, let my supplication come before you. And notice that twice it says before you, before you, O Yahweh, and before you. And you see that there's an urgency, there's a, there's a plea. And in this case, uh, when he says, let my supplications come before you, it literally it means, let my plea for grace come before you. I need your help, O oh Lord. 
What it reveals to us is this right prayer. Right prayer is coming and crying to the only one who not only hears the prayers of his people, but also in his timing and in his way and based upon who he is, we can trust that he would do what is good and right for his glory and our good. Let my plea for grace come before you. He knows he's not worthy of God's gracious delivery, deliverance and mercy. He, he, he can't earn it. But he knows his covenant-keeping master. He has seen him as he be, has beheld him in the pages of Scripture. As he looks at the, at the, at the Torah, the, the, the five books of the Old, the first five books of the Old Testament, and as he sees God interacting with his people, he sees his shepherding care, and therefore he cries to him to hear his prayer. This is how believers pray. God always hears, though, the prayers of his people. He doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked unless they come to him on his terms. And sometimes, and I've heard this before uh, in many conversations, maybe you're evangelizing. Well, I don't, I don't pray to God because, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't do what I want him to do. I've been praying for an, a, a brand new car, an awesome house, a better paying job. And he's never given me that, so I don't care about God. God doesn't listen to the prayers of the wicked unless they come in humble dependence upon him. And that their prayers align with who he is. But he always hears the prayers of his people. In Psalm 10, verse 17, we read this. Psalm 10, verse 17 O Yahweh, you have heard the desires of the humble, and you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. In Psalm 99, verse 6, Psalm 99, verse 6, Moses and Evan were among his people, his priests and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon Yahweh and he answered them. The psalmist would have known and seen that over and over and over again as God was working and dealing with his people whom he has made a covenant with Israel. And Isaiah, Isaiah 58. We read the same thing. Isaiah 58, verse 9. Then you will call, and Yahweh will answer. You will cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness. 
He hears the prayers of his people. And not only does the Old Testament teach that for us as his people, and not only did the psalmist see that as he was reading his Bible, but also remember in the upper room, the Lord Jesus promised that his people, when they cry out to him, he will hear them. I love John. Gospel John has been such a treasure to my own soul. But especially the upper room when Jesus is making these promises to his people. Especially in light of the fact that he will no longer be physically present with them. He says, listen, I'm not abandoning you. But I'm doing something even better. So that I will send another like me who will be with you forever. And right before that, in the context of of giving these promises to encourage the disciples as he's, he's watching them and he's shepherding their own souls, he says to them, whatever you ask, chapter 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then again in John 15, verse 7, he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and they will be done for you. It will be done for you. And the connection is this. It's not that that Jesus is just giving us a, a blanket check so that we can fill in whatever amount we want. But rather, because we are abiding in him, because his truth is, is, is in control of our thoughts and mind, and therefore our desires and will and the things that we're going to be asking will be in line with who he is and what he wants. And when that happens, that's when you begin to see God answer prayer. And so the psalmist has seen the faithfulness of God over and over, answer the cries of his people. He knows that he can appeal to him and that the Lord in his way, in his timing, will answer but, but notice again, coming back to Psalm 119, he says, notice the request that he's asking here. First, give me understanding according to your word. He, he's asking for, for discernment. Here, the, the request is f- focused on an internal work. God, give me instruction in my depths of my soul. This is incredible because... In the crying out of an, an emotional uh, response to, to what's going on in circumstances, he now asks that God would do an internal work to bring his heart back in line with his truth. He wants insight into the word of God and thus the will of God so that he would live in light of it. He's not content to know information, but to know God and His thoughts so to conform His life to His revealed will, the Bible. And by the way, it shows us again, over and over again, that apart from God revealing Himself in His Word, every person would be in darkness. 
we need divine understanding. And so the psalmist's request shows that he equally needed to fortify his own faith as well as deliverance from those who would want to harm him. And so again, in 170, he says, deliver me according to your word. Another major theme. And really, when you come back to to this psalm, there is a summarizing of all that has been said. Here, there is an outward focus. He longs specifically for God to rescue him. And this is very important. Uh, The word deliver is a very important uh, soteriological word. That is a word that deals with God's salvation of his people in the Old Testament. And the idea is of drawing out or pulling out like an extrication. Or you could say an extraction of a a military who is... is, uh, uh, in, in, in the hot zone and they need to, to, to be delivered from this area and they must go to this place and then all of a sudden get out of there taken by helicopter and gone. Literally, he says, cause my removal. Take me out of this situation again. So far, God has not answered that for him. He's, he has instead demonstrated that through this, God will enable him to honor him in the midst of it. And so the purpose of this is not to get what he wants, but to make known to his God what is the desire of his heart and trust his revealed character and promise in Scripture that he will do what is in line with who he is. And so it's a great fitting cry to the Lord. My friends, faithful and mature believers pray like this. This is how you trust God, by bringing your cries to Him so that He would give you insight from His Word as to the nature and character of who He is. And therefore worthy of your trust, both when things are great, but when things look terrible. Remember, O believer, that even in our severe pain and prayer, you not only have... The Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you who is interceding and praying on your behalf. Taking our pathetic prayers oftentimes and praying what we should be praying for. But we also have the the Lord Jesus Christ who is interceding on our behalf. Who always gets a yes and amen. And you ever wonder... What that kind of prayer is, all you need to do is go to John 17 and you will see how Jesus prays for his people. My friends, if that's, that's the cry of a believer, it should encourage us to come uh, to the end of the Psalms and learn from him how incredible it is to pray to our God. And so pray, Lord, hear my prayer. Number two, pray, Lord, let me praise you. Let me praise you. You see, the psalmist's desire is that the Lord would put a song in his mouth to praise him. In the midst of suffering. You see, as he's growing in discernment and and, and God answering the requests, give me understanding, deliver me according to your word. As he grew, 
He saw God's word work in his life. And because of that, it led to praise. In other words, he he is calling and asking God, Oh Lord, give me abundant reasons to praise you with my lips. Notice the request. And you can see that in, in verses 171 and 172. He says first, let my lips utter praise. And again, let my tongue sing of your word. Growing, friends, in our understanding and application of God's word should lead to adoration of the Lord. Not less. And his request is there, let my lips utter praise. Literally, let me continually pour out. It it denotes an eager eagerness, an abundant and unceasing praise. The the, the image here is of a a bubbling uh, brook or spring that is gushing out. Out of its fullness of what it is, it is just breaking forth. It can't contain it. Nothing can contain it. And so from the fullness of what is already there, from the fullness of God's instruction through His Word, He has given all the reasons to give God praise, even when life sucks. Let my tongue sing of your Word, sing, literally sing out loud. And notice the connection between the Word of God and praising God. In other words, to to, to praise God must be based upon the truth of God's Word. Not some ecstatic experience and something that you have to uh, 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 build up in your own heart. Like, pump yourself up. And when you are in the Word, what you're seeing is the God faithfully doing what He alone can do. All throughout Scripture, we are given ample reasons for that. And, and so maybe, maybe the reason, maybe the reason that sometimes in our own lives there is not a a, a song or a praise in which God uh, for who He is is because when we spend time in the Word, we just are going through the motions. We're not seeing Him for who He is or appreciating Him for who He is. But rather, we're so uh, tunnel vision and see our circumstances and we consider what's going on and we say, where are you, O God? He's like, I'm here and I'm doing so much more than you could ever dream or imagine. And so the psalmist is saying, Lord, let me praise you. Give me, again, abundant reasons to praise you. And there is again that connection that our praise of God, our singing of, of adoration of who He is, must align with God's truth. Jesus made that very clear in John chapter 4, right? You remember that interaction with a Samaritan woman? In John chapter 4, as Jesus was ministering to this woman who has had multiple husbands in sin, and even the one she had there at that time wasn't even her husband. 
the Lord confronts this sin and brings it up. And she switches a conversation and she tries to go back to uh, some religious experience and some location in which worship is being done to Yahweh. And I remember the Lord Jesus in his response to her. He said in verse 23, But an hour is coming and now is. When, true, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father demands to be his worshipers. Normally, most translations say, seek. But that is, that is the, uh, a little toned. It's like, no, this is what he demands from those who worship him. They must worship him in spirit and truth. Yes, there is great affection, but that affection is, must be aligned with his word. We don't just get to do whatever we want. Or however we want. God defines what worship is and how he is to be worshipped. And so it is critical. And the psalmist gives here uh, two reasons why he's asking for this. First, reason deals with what Yahweh does with his word. Notice what he says in 171. For you teach me your statutes. You teach me your statutes. That is to say, Yahweh intensely is active in instructing him through his word. The reason why he's asking this request, the reason why he's saying this is because, Lord, you are my own tutor. He has received personal and regular instruction from the Lord. Certainly through the, the priest who would teach the word of God. But also through meditation of the word. So not only because you, of what Yahweh does with His Word, but the second reason is uh, that He asked for this is of what deals with what Yahweh's Word is. Verse one seventy two: For all your commandments are righteous, are righteous. Since the Word of God is intricately, intricately linked together with God. Since he is his author, God's commandments express his righteous character and will. This is why, why the word of God is sufficient in your life, no matter what you're facing. Everything he says and expects of his people is right. Whatever reveals about him, who he is and what he does and will do, and what he expects from his people is never wrong. And so as a believer, we want to offer praise to God. To give him glory, do his name. In Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42 we see a, 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 a call to this, a, a right response for, for the coming of Messiah was to praise God. Isaiah 42 verse 12, we say, Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare His praise in the coastlands. 
Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says that one of the purposes of our salvation is to praise God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We're familiar with this verse. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. For what purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. It is not just so that it would be just an encouragement to you. When you praise God and when you praise God and sing out loud, it is contagious. (laughs) Ever been in your home, maybe... I love doing this sometimes to my wife in particular. We, she knows a lot of songs. And so I can start singing a song, just like a sentence, and then I, and I wait, and I wait, and then she starts singing it. I can be like on the opposite side of the room, and, and we do this. Sometimes even the kids do this as well. They, they, they'll throw out maybe a sentence or a couple words to a song, and then you start singing it, right? You know, it just it happens. Why? Because song is, is, is important, it's critical. It, it, it wedges into our heart. It takes truth and embeds it into our hearts and minds. Especially the word of God. And so Peter says that this is one of the purposes of a believer is to sing praises to our God. But it is not only during times of, of rejoicing that ought to happen. It is even, uh, even helpful and beneficial to your soul when you do that during trials and afflictions. Remember when Paul and Silas are in prison. And, and we, we got to remember that the prisons that we're, we're thinking about, it's not where there's like cable TV um, you know, awesome three meals a day. Um, you got a comfy mattress. Um, that, that's not what we're thinking about when we're talking about prison. But even in the midst of the Acts chapter 16, verse 25, we're told that these two men began to praise God. But about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And you remember what happened, how God used that as a testimony of his grace to save others around them. It's how we as believers express our joy to the Lord in James chapter in chapter 5, James chapter 5, we read the similar, similar thing. James chapter 5 says, in, in the context of, of suffering, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Again, this serves as an encouragement ultimately to God's people. Truth must lead to praise. Orthodoxy, right understanding, right doctrine should lead to doxology. It's the right 
connection. And this is what the psalmist is saying. Let me praise you, O Lord. Fill me here at the end as we are coming to the conclusion. He is praying a right request and saying, O Lord, fill me with so much that I may praise you. I may praise you. My friends, you have a stewardship to speak of the greatness of our God. Every time you fill your mind with the word, it's not just you and God and your coffee, which is great. It starts there, but it must lead further to to the encouragement of praise, to the speaking out of the greatness of who God is. That's how we encourage one another. That's how we point others to Christ. And so this is the plea of a believer. Pray, Lord, hear my prayer. Pray, Lord, let me praise you. Number three, pray, Lord, give me help. Give me help. He, he, he already is in, in, in putting this to practice, but he states it once again, as he's done before, let your hand be ready to help me. For I have chosen your precepts. He's requesting uh, divine assistance. Uh, uh, He says, let your hand help me. By the way, God doesn't have hands. It's a metaphor, an anthropomorphism that, that, that highlights God's power. And here, this power is, is speaking of a, a, a readiness, an act of, Lord, in the instant, do what only you can do, please. Act. Be ready to help me, he says. He needs divine help, divine assistance. I love that word, help. Azer. First time that it appears in the scriptures, it is, it is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a suitable helper. A perfect complement. But that word is most often used of God in the Old Testament who alone can help his people. And yet, he says that the wife serves and has the greatest opportunity to be in that role. The compliment of her husband. It's incredible. He alone is the only one who can supply aid in such a way as to lead to success. He is the only one who can give true help to his people. And so he is asking God to continually help him. And notice uh, uh, the request, the reason for the request, for I have chosen your precepts. Listen, he's not just here asking for help to do what he wants to do, but rather, oh God, help me to do what you want me to do. As a believer, we have been given a will to honor God. And you see that in their commitment to submit to God's word. And this is what he says. He's he's showing here his resolve to obey it. 
You see the true heart of the psalmist by, by choosing God's word over everything else. It, it communicates priority. I am in submission to your truth, O Lord. And so because of that, help me. Rather than choosing the finite counsel of men or the applause of the culture or his own limited reason skewed by his own flesh. God and his word and in ways are vital to him. This is his confession that he would align himself to the word of God. He's not, he, he's not, this is not recommending that you sit waiting uh, back and, and waiting for some kind of feeling or strength or audible word from God before you obey. Rather, what it shows is that a, a commitment to obey God and in the path of obedience, you are asking God to help you obey Him. And so we have seen in the beginning of Psalm chapter 1, it is in the doing that God gives strength. One, one author said, strength comes in the doing. But notice the, the, the ultimate desire for him is, is, is beyond what's here in this life. He says, I long for your salvation, O Yahweh. Your law is my delight. It's not talking about, as we have seen, the salvation of his own soul from sin. A believer would not write, an, excuse me, an unbeliever would not write Psalm 119. <laughs> he would not desire to be mastered by God's word or be dependent upon God's, God through prayer in line with who he is. He's asking for salvation from his external circumstance, but that he would do something like he saw um, in, in Exodus, where, where God delivered His people by the Red Sea. Oh Lord, I know that You can do that. He, but most importantly, He longs for the day in which God will make everything right. Though it might not happen here and now physically, one day, whatever He is doing will end. Whatever is going against him will end. The trials, the afflictions, the criticism, the, the uh, uh, oppression that's coming from those without will end. And he will be free to obey God fully and completely as God deserves. That's his desire. And you notice you can see it because he says, and your law is my delight. He is devoted to God's law and it is, it is His pleasure. It, it brings Him joy in the midst of what's going on. This is again critical because the psalmist reveals not that he is barely making it, but even in the midst of his hardship with, with no end inside, he is completely refreshed from the depths and the sufficiency of the Word of God. The core of his being. It was a Lord who said that his food was to do the will of his Father. It is ultimately the culmination of our salvation to worship our God in perfection. 
of the kind of worship he deserves, who saved us, who were his enemies, who were opposed to him, who hated him, who would never on our own come and respond to his gospel unless he has shown his light through his spirit and made us alive from within, granted us repentance and faith that we may have eternal life in Christ. The culmination of our salvation is to behold the Lord in his glory and to do everything perfectly as he deserves. This is the longing of the believer. This is why he wants help. Finally, pray, Lord, seek me when I stray. Seek me when I stray. It is most interesting, if we were following along, if you were to read the whole thing again and you come to this end, there's been much discussion in the commentaries from liberal commentators to conservative and even believers who are writing that kind of bring this to the end and say, what is going on here? Those who would say, oh yeah, he's, he's, he's not saved. You see that? He's already stated that he's not saved. And, and, and I would tell you, as I did in the beginning, you know that he is because of what he already stated in 169. But if you were to read the whole context, we already know. Only a believer would want what he pursues. You see, we were created, as the Westminster Confession says, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or to, to use the words of John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And this is the longing and commitment of the believer. But, but there are times in our lives, as you are very well aware this week, <laughs> maybe even this morning, that when we allow wrong thinking, to dominate our lives and, and for a moment we stray and we choose to sin. We struggle with temptation. We struggle with failures. We, we give into sin. And they make it all about us. At that crossroad we must follow the example of the psalmist here and pray that the Lord would seek us when we stray. Bring us back to His fold so that we do not forget his word. Seek us, O Lord. Once, verse 176 is the longest verse and way different than all the other verses of this whole psalm. And it is the most fitting conclusion here. He says, let my, soul, let, let my soul live that it may praise you, verse 175. I long, in other words, I long for your spiritual renewal. Refresh me give, me, give me not just transformation on the outside. He's not interested in outward modification, but transformation that goes from the core of who he is. By the way, to, to talk about your life as, as your soul is, is the kind of right language that you should use. 
So the question that Rick would say, how is your soul, is right and appropriate over and over again. Because we're not just talking about the outward circumstances, but your own response and the things that you are wrestling with in the midst of the things that you're going through. It's a great way to talk about your life. Let your ordinances help me. How, how, how is God to, to do this? How is, God, how is He to let His soul live so that He may praise Him? With His Word. I want you to see this connection. He says, and let your ordinances help me. In verse 173, He had already stated, let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. Here, He says, and let your ordinances help me. The connection is very very clear for us that God's word is the means by which he helps his people. It is. This is the answer to his string that he was going to talk about here in 176. You see, the believer who is mastered by the word of God can offer the best help and hope to the souls around him and, to, and particularly to his own soul, but also to anybody who is hurting Why is that necessary? He says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. I love this. I love that the whole psalm is real, but my friends, the the Bible is raw and real, and it deals with some things in there that, if you were to make it a movie, it would be rated R or probably X in some cases. (laughs) Here it is, it is raw and it's real and he's bringing it. He says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Now, now the, the, the problem that people have is like, in what way has he gone astray? And, and the grammar is not necessarily itself helpful in this case. Because you can take it in two ways. One, I have gone astray like right now. Like literally between verse 175 and 176, something happened. Or... And I think this is the better understanding is like, and I think we need to read the whole thing, the comparison is like a lost sheep. He's talking about the tendency that he has as a believer to constantly be tempted and oftentimes wanders. Sheep tend to wander. (laughs) That's why they need a shepherd. But notice, notice him. He takes responsibility for his own actions. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. He, he, he sees himself correctly. He, he sees himself belonging to the fold. Not only that, as we will see here in a moment, he sees himself as the slave of Yahweh. He belongs to Yahweh's fold. He sees that he has a tendency to go astray like a lost sheep. But he goes to the only one who could rescue him, who could help him, who could lead him, who can restore him, who can bring him back to the fold, to the green pastures, who leads with with both his, his rod and his staff. He's making aware of his own frailty. He knows that he has failed a lot. 
But he also knows that in, in, in an equal way and in really in an unmatched way, he knows that Yahweh will rescue him and plant his feet back upon solid ground. He is his shepherd. He recognizes he's in a bad part of the pasture and in danger of being devoured by life and those who are seeking to destroy him. My friends, this is the often truth of the experience of the believer. The, the unspoken experience of the believer that, that we try to hide from one another. That is so easy that when you only see each other in certain times, and especially on a, on a Sunday or, or, or in a time of gathering in the church, that the, 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 the face of, of Christianity comes up and there's this wall um, and, and there's no realness that's going on. It, everything is perfect and fine when you know it's not. This is the psalmist's being open and honest of who he is, but really it's an expression of really what all true believers are like. You see that the more that you behold the glory of God in the pages of Scripture, the more clearly you will see your sin. And you will hate it, and you will be bothered by it. Have you ever had it where where you are dealing with something and you're like, man, I just got to, if I just work on this one area in my life, man, then everything else will be great. And and, and maybe you do and you're working really well. And then all of a sudden, 10 more other things show up and you're like, what in the world just happened? I thought I had it down. That's exactly what he's saying here. That's exactly what he's saying here. You see, your conscience becomes sensitive because it is informed by Scripture. And then it brings about the right perspective when dealing with our sin. And what it shows is that a believer can have a vibrant uh, uh, life in the Lord. They can be reading, they can be praying, uh, they can be faithful to the Lord. But they are not immune to temptations and to struggles and even to sin. And so what is the remedy? The psalmist says, take responsibility for your own actions and go to the one and call him to seek you, to bring you back. This is not, you know, people would would credit the whole psalm. It's just so arrogant about who he is. Man, you have not read it right. And if you come to this end, you see this humble, faithful dependence upon God. He says, therefore, the request, seek your servants. New American Standard translation, literally, your slave. This is where the concept of being a slave to God is so precious and so good. Seek your property. Go after it. You own me. Take special care. I need you. I belong to you. And it shows that he belongs to Yahweh. Thus he is not asking for salvation. For the penalty of his sin. But from wandering heart that remains after being his. It's like the hymn writer, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 
It ends with, with humble dependence upon God. He, he pleads with God to go after him and to bring him back to his fold. And when he does that, such grace and such kindness responds, rather than God giving us what we deserve because of Christ, completely satisfied his wrath. We are never under the condemnation of God. That grace must motivate us to not forget who he is. His word. And so the psalmist concludes, he says, For I do not forget your commandments. He recognizes his own frailty. He knows he needs constant help to do what is right. He goes to the only source for true help, the God of the word. The one who is, and as we just learned this week, the unchanging one. What a fitting conclusion. Far from arrogance, far from self-righteousness, we have seen a believer humbled and dependent upon God's sufficient resource for everyday life. His word. And so invites us to come back over and over to make it a habit, to make it a practice in your life as a believer, to come before God and to make this psalm a regular practice in which you marinate your soul and that you are encouraged to be fully dependent upon God and His Word. And you will see your life be transformed. By the way, we're going to do membership reception in there. I want to end with a quote from Spurgeon. He says this. He here sums up not only his past, but even his present life under the image of a sheep which has broken from his pasture, forsaken the flock, left the shepherd and brought itself into the wild wilderness where it has become as a lost thing. The sheep bleats and David prays, Seek thy servant. His argument is forceful one. For I do not forget the, thy commandments. I know the right. I approve and admire the right. What is more, I love the light and long for it. I cannot be satisfied to continue in sin. I must be restored to the ways of righteousness. I have become, I have, I have a homesickness after my God. I pine after the ways of peace. I do not, and I cannot forget thy commandments, nor cease to know that I am always happiest and safest when I am scrupulously obey them and find all my joy in doing so. Now, if the grace of God enables us to maintain in our hearts the loving memory of God's commandments, it will surely yet restore us to practical holiness. That man cannot be utterly lost whose heart is still with God. If he be gone astray in many respects, yet still, if he be true in his soul's innermost desires, he will be found again and fully restored. Yet let the reader remember the first verse of the psalm when he reads the last. The major blessedness lies not in being restored from wandering, but in being upheld in a blameless way to the end. Be it ours to keep the crown of the causeway, never leaving the king's highway for bypath meadows 
or any other flowery path of sin. And may the Lord uphold us even to the end, yet even then we shall not be able to boast with the Pharisees, but shall stay, still pray with the publican, God, be merciful to me, sinner, and with the psalmist, seek thy servant. May that be us. Father, thank you so much for the joy it has been to go through the psalm, to come to a conclusion. Yet really it is, as always is, the beginning of our lives to continue to live in faithful dependence upon you. We thank you for what you're doing. May you use your word in our lives as a church that we would be the most useful instruments in your hands to praise you to all, to declare the greatness of who you are to everyone around us, all for your glory. Thank you that we belong to you and that you will seek us and that you will plant us that one day we will stand as the psalmist says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In your name we pray.